What I saw basically in Afghanistan and Iraq was is that I could have predators above. I could uh, sort of understand what I thought was happening on the ground until I had actually had soldiers either in the air above them or on the ground actually talking. I didn't really understand what was happening. And, and I think that, that you're going to continue to see a requirement for human curiosity, not machine learned, but human curiosity enabled by platforms that allow that human to be protected but it's to, and extend that range, that a curiosity range, for example, with launched effects. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm J.J. Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian from the sidelines of the Association of the United States Army's annual conference and trade show, uh, where we are going to help put Army aviation front and center. We'll be joined by a real Army aviation legend, retired Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is now with Bell. He is a two-time director of U.S. Army aviation, and we'll have this week's headlines in air power. And as usual, it's all powered by GE. The GE Aerospace XA100 engine is tested and ready to deliver 30% more range, 20% greater acceleration, and twice the cooling to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash XA100. And Bell sponsors the Defense and Aerospace Reports daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. JJ, what's in the news this week on All Wings Considered? Well, Vago, it's the last extension for the extender. The KC-10 has flown its final combat mission. Henceforth, it will be seen in the air on the way to the Boneyard. At that, we have to give it some credit for long outlasting most of the DC-10s and MD-11s that it was based on that were in the commercial world. The Army has begun new engine acceptance for the Farah prototypes. The ITEP engines are finally on their way out to the competitors so that they can start on the Farah program. And there is an analysis of alternatives expected in that program by the end of the year. The U.S. Air Force let it be known that they are looking at a thrust range of 3,000 to 8,000 pounds for future drone aircraft, the collaborative combat aircraft. That means that those aircraft are probably going to be bigger than we were originally thinking. The United States Marine Corps has advanced their work with unmanned aircraft completing their first test flight of the XQ-58 Valkyrie from Kratos, again, a higher level and more sophisticated UAS than the Marines had previously operated. And the winner is Sierra Nevada. The U.S. Army has selected that Colorado company to provide a couple of ISR platforms as part of a prototype effort ahead of fielding a high-altitude ISR fleet then again, this is the Department of Defense's at least third try at putting ISR on business jet platforms, and I think it's at least the second for the Army. We'll see if this one works out. According to the folks at Flight Global, Greece is looking to buy 49 Black Hawk helicopters to replace its Huey fleet. And an Air Power podcast exclusive. The U.S. Air Force has begun initial development of the F-7. What's an F-7, you ask? Not the Pakistani version of the MiG-21, that's already been developed. Think a T-7 Red Hawk trainer with hard points and other modifications that turn it into a light fighter. Air Force leadership has not signed off on a full program yet, but a small team is at work developing the road ahead. Vago? 
Absolutely uh, fascinating uh, set of headlines. And before we get to our interview with General Schlosser, first, uh, let us uh, lament and tip a hat to uh, the KC-10. The extender is uh, just an amazing aircraft, uh, delivered an enormous amount of capability, and it's going to be very big shoes to fill in terms of its cargo, as well as fuel offload capability. I think people don't recognize that, you know, those 50 airplanes are very important in terms of movement of cargo pallets and, again, of gas. I think that, you know, having spent a couple of days here at a uh, USA, there's certainly relief uh, that the GE engine for the Farah uh, aircraft is coming. And so there's some excitement uh, about that, even though there might be some questions about the uh, outlook for the uh, analysis of alternatives. You know, you, you made a joke, uh, speaking of engines, about the collaborative combat aircraft and the thrust range. I'm one of the people who always assumed that this was going to be a bigger airplane than a smaller one. I mean, if it's going to be supporting the next generation air dominance aircraft, which is going to be something that is rangy and can operate forward, these are long-range airplanes that are going to have to operate ahead of those long-range airplanes. Were you thinking of these as being sort of petite airplanes that come off the NGAD or bigger airplanes that actually are wingmen to the NGAD? Well, they're not only expected to be wingmen for the NGAD and fight hand in glove with NGAD and possibly F-35. But remember also that collaborative combat aircraft are part of the force design accompanying the B-21. So we're likely to have a family of such systems. And the ones that we're talking about for NGAD maybe the smaller brother in that family. Uh, it is going to be fascinating. But given that this is a special access project, I don't think, you know, I think getting information on it is going to be incremental, even if we're going to keep trying, uh, as we have managed to break some news on the program over the months. Congratulations this year in Nevada, obviously a very important capability for high altitude intelligence, surveillance and reconnaissance for the Army. Let me take you, though, to the exclusive, right? The mm -hmm. T-7 obviously is in development, some teething problems there. The U.S. Air Force very eager to put that trainer into service. When it was designed, there was a little bit of a debate about whether or not it becomes an F, a fighter airplane. At the time, I remember Boeing telling us, look, it, you know, could it do other things? Yes, it is being built as a trainer. What capacity would the F-7 fill in the portfolio from your standpoint? Right. I mean, the U.S. Air Force has experimented you know, the A-29s, the uh, Super Tucanos were developed. There was some criticism about that. And and sadly, right, I mean, the critics said, you're putting this into service just as everything's being wrapped up. How does the F-7 get used and what utility would it bring? The idea of an export lightweight fighter or comparatively lightweight fighter, something of a successor to the F-5 in spirit is one possibility. But remember also that the Air Force has the advanced tactical trainer concept that they're working on, which is a trainer that has higher performance than the TX that became the T-7 that is primarily to be used as an adversary aircraft. So if you have something that's based on a trainer but has higher performance, it probably has lower operating costs than using frontline fighters as adversary aircraft. And you may be able to tailor it to resemble a number of the different airplanes that we would likely encounter elsewhere in the world. Put your market analysts uh, hat on this, right? How <laughs> attractive is a jet like that going to be 
right? I mean, I think that some people forget that your day job is the military aircraft guy for the Teal Group, uh, a role that Richard Abalafia of our Sunday podcast uh, used to fulfill. And by the way, I just have to say what a treat it was to have you, Ron, and Richard on the show all together when we saw each other at the aerospace event, Joanna Speed's new conference that was just an absolute blockbuster. Yes, go find that podcast that first dropped yesterday. It started out as a bit of a pickup opportunity, but actually got into some rather worthy analysis on major headlines, including Gaza. What are the market legs for this? Because ultimately, Mm -hmm. it's not abundantly clear. Yeah, in the 1950s, when you could get a Tiger II and put it into service, right? I mean, the F-5 had some legs. But pretty much since then, people opt for F-16s, they opt for Gripens, they opt for Rafals. What's the market this plane would fill? There's a market slot that's between a high-end turboprop and an F-16, where a country that may be operating Tucanos now in a light fighter role or an attack role would want to be able to move up to something higher performing, but may not have the budget for F-16s. And I think in addition to the advanced tactical trainer role for the United States Air Force, that foreign countries might look at that and say, that's an appealing next step. Now, could you have a decontented F-16 that would compete with it? Quite possibly. But a lot of this depends on whether the U.S. Air Force actually uses the F-7, because as you know, all around the world, Air Forces want to buy what the Air Force in the United States is flying. And if it doesn't have that USAF imprimatur on it, it doesn't do so well. Ask the folks who tried to sell the F-20. Thanks very much for giving us the historical redux on that. And, uh, you know, I would add the Scorpion, uh, right? The Airland Scorpion that Textron uh, acquired and invested an enormous amount of money into was seen as really a breakthrough aircraft. The unfortunate thing is whether the Air National Guard was interested in it, the U.S. Air Force itself wasn't interested in it, and it ended up torpedoing the prospects of what would have been otherwise a brilliant idea for a flexible airplane that could have straight wings, swept wings, could be unmanned, uh, as well as carry a decent amount of payload and do it very efficiently. Mm-hmm. Sure. There is one other significant difference, though, between the Scorpion and a potential F-7, and it's that the Scorpion was a brand new clean sheet of paper aircraft. Folks around the world will have seen the T-7 in operation for some time before we get an F-7. And so they'll understand something about what it actually costs to operate, what its actual performance is. It'll be a little more familiar and not have the absolute brand new showroom gleam that frankly makes some Air Forces a little suspicious. And let's put it this way. It's also got a very loud afterburning engine in it, right? So, I mean, <laughs> at the end of the day, really what chips everybody, you know, not, not two little turbojets. Wow. Right. No, like a real, a real, a real loud engine. Fast um, cells and loud cells. There you go. The zoom and boom uh, part of the podcast. That was for you, Adam. I also want to give a very important shout out for uh, those in our group who won the Defense Media Awards this year, our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, the co-hosts of the Cavus Ships podcast, won as really just an extraordinary program for anybody interested in naval and maritime matters. We congratulate Chris and Chris on a job terrifically well done, as well as Laura Winter, who is uh, the host of the Downlink podcast. She's absolutely terrific. As I say, uh, you know, every week, a thoughtful look at all things space. And so we congratulate Chris, Chris and Laura for doing a tremendous job for the team. Couldn't be prouder of you guys and keep up the great work. Also, Vago 
show great credit to you for getting this whole enterprise started in the first place, picking the right people on the right subjects where all of their colleagues recognize that what they're doing is leading edge journalism. Thanks very much, JJ. And it's an, an honor to have you on the team as well. And we look forward to you getting the recognition that you rightly uh, deserve, despite my best efforts on a weekly basis. <laughs> Screw that up. And hey, if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts. Cabas Ships, hosted by Chris Cabas and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our new technology report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. Without further ado, we're at AUSA. And it is always an honor and pleasure to talk to Jeff Schlosser. He is a retired United States Army Major General, a two-time director of U.S. Army Aviation. He commanded America's mission in Afghanistan, who also led the Army Aviation Association of America, certainly one of the most important organizations representing the United States Army's aviation forces. And I think that historically there's a tendency when we talk about air power to think about air power in the Air Force context, in a naval context, but the United States Army is a critical element of that as well. He's an executive vice president at Bell. And we had, I thought, a terrifically thoughtful conversation about lessons learned from the Ukraine war, the atrocities recently perpetrated by Hamas on innocent Israelis, as well as the outlook for the army budget, as well as its aviation programs. Here's our conversation with General Schlosser. Sir, uh, terrific seeing you again. Thanks very much. I know how busy uh, you've been uh, all week, and we're catching you on Wednesday and a little bit of a lull uh, in uh, the action. Uh, I know that you recently were in uh, Ukraine on a delegation that was invited by President Zelensky, and I want to get your thoughts on that in a moment. You know, we've been trying to work, and you've helped us try to understand some of the lessons uh, from uh, the Ukraine war. Uh, we're 18 months into that conflict, and now we've seen uh, the atrocities committed by Hamas in Israel, uh, Israel's reaction uh, to that. But the extraordinary uh, capabilities that Hamas as a terrorist organization uh, delivered in terms of using democratized air power uh, to achieve its objectives of, you know, whether for reconnaissance, but also for strike, taking out remote weapons turrets, allowing bulldozers to come through and, and, and the like. From your standpoint, as, as you look at this as a former soldier, but also still as a strategist and somebody who's helping strategize, not just for Bell, but for Textron, what are some of the important lessons, both from the Ukraine war, as well as what we just saw uh, from Hamas? Yeah, so the key part, I think, Vago, is, is that you have to understand what's actually happening on the ground 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. That's really a challenge. And so what you're seeing is, is that there are limits to what we would call human intelligence in Gaza, very demonstrably so. I mean, the Hamas did a um, pretty competent job of keeping this uh, quiet so that uh, neither of the, none of the intelligence agencies that were actually paid to follow them were able to track what was going to happen. You see somewhat uh, similar situations on a tactical level inside of the Ukraine. In other words, where does Russia mass its forces? Where are its minefields? How, are, how is it going to cover minefields with firepower and things like that? That's a fight every day to try to achieve tactical intelligence on the battlefield. So in one case, it's a strategic, you know, and it's a strategic, it'll go down as a failure in, in Israel, a strategic intelligence failure on the ground and it's every each and every day trying to understand it's a battle for tactical intelligence on Ukraine. 
Um, in terms of uh, demonstrated capabilities, right, we've seen air power being used in a number of different ways, right? Ukraine is seen as the first drone war with tens of thousands of drones, right? I mean, not boutique application, but wide scale. From your standpoint, what are some of the lessons that teaches us about how to blend manned, unmanned capability, right? You're developing two very important manned platforms, uh, but there are also, you know, you guys have a giant assortment of unmanned capability you're trying to develop, for example, the 247. What, how, do you, how do you see the future battlefield and how, does, how do these conflicts inform what it is that as a U.S. Army and a U.S. military we need to be looking at in terms of what the future looks like? Yeah, and there's no doubt that you're going to see in the future of AGO the increasing use of drone warfare, UAVs, and things like that. And so the primary lesson is, is that if you think you can be unobserved on a battlefield, it's going to be extraordinarily hard to do that. I mean, you can have all the camouflage net and you can do all the dispersal operations and have you know no mass at all until you're trying to uh, bring mass and firepower together for, uh, for moments but you're going to be seen, you're going to be sensed, and uh, it's going to be a, a true challenge. And I think that that's what you're going to see from the UAV. What you're not going to see, though, is, is that those are set piece things. What you're not going to see is the human in, uh, curiosity, the human intuition. Uh, what I saw basically in Afghanistan and Iraq was is that I could have predators above, I could uh, sort of understand what I thought was happening on the ground, until I actually had soldiers either in the air above them or on the ground actually talking. I didn't really understand what was happening. And, and I think that, that you're going to continue to see a requirement for human curiosity, not machine learned, but human curiosity enabled by platforms that allow that human to be protected but it's to, and extend that range, that a curiosity range, for example, with launched effects. Uh, I think that's going to be the key player here. We can't forget that humans, uh, that warfare is, is, is a battle of wills between you know, human beings. Uh, machines can fight some of that, they're not going to finish this thing. And, uh, and let's always remember that on the ground is how wars get solved. You, you either dominate the terrain, dominate the enemy, or dominate the population. It takes people to do that, drones can't do it. Um, let me take you to um, what you learned uh, on this uh, Ukraine trip. It was a senior level trip. You got back two weeks ago. Uh, was an important delegation there. What were some of your key uh, takeaways as uh, Ukraine is very much fighting for its existence? Yeah, well, one of the, I think, key factors that I, I saw, I'd heard before, you know, a lot of people saying, well, you know, what's demonstrated there because of all the minefields and the defensive belts that look somewhat like World War One is that uh, the demise of tanks. The tank is no longer relevant. And also the same thing with helicopters. You know, watching helicopters on YouTube being blown out of the sky has got people focused on those two platforms, helicopters, tanks. I think what I saw in Ukraine was is that the vast majority of the time, the issues with them were having to do with how they were employed, their old types of, uh, you know, uh, uh, air vehicles, in the case of MI-17s, MI-8s, uh, in the air and on the ground, of course, the, you know, until they were just recently received new tanks or, uh, from Germany, Leopard tanks, as well as uh, our few uh, Abrams, they really didn't have a capability. It was basically Russian tanks against Russian tanks. So what I would say is, is uh, that the utility of how they were being used was probably uh, the most important aspect here. They didn't fight them the way the U.S. would fight uh, the Russians, for an example, not that I hope that it would ever happen. What was fascinating, though, was is the incredible heroism. I met, uh, as I said, uh, with the uh, chief of staff of the uh, uh, Army Aviation in the Ukraine, 
he um, introduced me to a colonel who's known as the hero of Mariupol. In spite of Mariupol being surrounded by Russian forces, he flew in there, and I believe it was an MI-17, essentially 10 to 20 feet off the ground, 13 times to help evacuate Mariupol, help evacuate the wounded. And I talked to him about how he did it, and it wasn't just pure bravery. I mean, you know, they, they knew how to, you know, create diversions so the Russians were looking different ways. He knew how to use alternative routes or alternate routes. He knew how to fly very low, use that lower air domain to get underneath, you know, surface air missiles. They are very brave, they're very creative. They can use more modern technology and clearly, uh, as they learn more and more from uh, the U.S. and allied forces about how to pull all that together in combined arms warfare, I think they'll be more successful. But that was one of the biggest lessons. Um, you know, you, you mentioned something very interesting, which uh, Russian observers were making uh, in uh, literally the next day after what happened in, uh, in Gaza and the Hamas attack, which was any massed formation is now extremely vulnerable from aerial attack. We've seen this in terms of the unmanned uh, aircraft, and you also mentioned that. I know that you interact at a very senior level with U.S. Army leaders. What are, what's some of the experimentation and the thinking about what that ends up looking like? Because one of the things that we have always capitalized on is mass, smart mass, but at the end of the day, it is mass and it is combined arms. How do we think through the complexity of that problem where if you can see it, you can kill it, even at range? Yeah. Well, first of all, I mean, standoff is going to be really important. That's why the utility of having aircraft that can go twice as fast and twice as far is going to be important. So in many cases, you're going to try not to have any of your high-end uh, valued uh, items, whether it's uh, future vertical lift aircraft or, for example, cruise missile or guided missile or... Uh, uh, prism types of uh, artillery and things like that, the, you know, precision strike, long range and things like that. You're going to put that out of the strike zone, out of the, out of the enemy strike zone, uh, and then be able to mass that forward as you need it. Um, that's one lesson. Two, you're, you're going to see command and control be dispersed in a variety of very interesting ways. I mean, I, I heard a report from uh, the Joint Readiness Training Center where a striker uh, brigade, was, or battalion, excuse me, was being controlled from five strikers, but none of them were together. So the whole idea where I would walk into my command post as a division commander and I'd have, you know, almost 100 uh, or more uh, staff officers there and I could talk to them and see them. Instead, as a battalion commander, or a battalion commander, I had a smaller version of that, now they are five striker vehicles and they're all around the battlefield. And they're connected, they're networked, and that's how they are able to achieve the, achieve the effects that you have. On a tactical basis, what you're going to see is smaller units located in locations that uh, are away from, you know, areas that they could be seen. So large fields and things like that, you're never going to be able to see that again. And instead, they're going to be in areas where they're under trees, they're under some sort of a uh, cover or concealment. And then when they're, when they're needed, they will mass uh, on time, on target, and then they'll rapidly disperse. And so I think you're going to see things like that happening more and more in future conflict. But right now you're seeing it in training in the United States uh, military. And, uh, and the Ukrainians are actually doing it on the ground to the best of their ability. Um, you were a um, 
Cold Warrior. Uh, you also uh, were uh, among the Airland generation of warriors, where um, you guys were uh, prototyping uh, greater combined uh, operations between the Air Force and the United States Army. The only way a war in Europe was going to get one was doing Airland battle, uh, and General Starry and the brilliant work that he did in that. But you also grew up in a very mission command uh, environment. Talk to us a little bit about the resuscitation of that, the discussions, and my understanding is that a new generation of soldiers are talking to your generation to figure out how is it you guys did this, how much leash you got, because in Iraq and Afghanistan, you could use the radio because you could. Talk to us a little bit about that um, transition that has to happen and what that means for Army Aviation Forces, because during the Cold War, you could be very effective even if you weren't emitting or talking a lot in terms of mission execution. Absolutely. So, I mean, to go back, I mean, you know, so I was a combat engineer platoon leader uh, during the Cold War and on the Fulda Gap, right? I had a set-piece fight that I knew that I had actually knew who the enemy was on the other side or who was the potential enemy. I knew the Soviet Union forces, uh, the Soviet forces. Um, and uh, I basically knew my instructions from beforehand. Uh, if we lost radio communications, I knew what my boss wanted. So I, had, I was embedded in commander's intent. Uh, but it was still more combined. It was air land battle at, at, at that point in time. Um, I was fairly well aware of the type of forces that would be on my side as well, as whether it was air forces from USAFE or whatever. And clearly knew uh, at that time it, they were, uh, pa or, excuse me, Cobras uh, that were going to be basically uh, operating uh, over the shoulder and then in, for in for front of me. So as we went through the wars of both Kosovo and Iraq and, and Afghanistan, I had to increasingly embrace increased uh, mission command. And in other words, it wasn't because the enemy or the Taliban could jam my communications. I could pick up and call, talk to just about anybody. But what I needed to have happen is, is I needed everybody from a young squad leader out in the middle of a command post uh, that would end up basically representing me as a division commander um, in a very complex environment that involved tribal politics or things like that. And at that kind of thing, whether it was engaging the enemy, the Taliban, or talking to the tribe or the indigenous pop, you know, the population, that person needed to know what my intent was. He didn't have enough time to say, I, I need to ask my boss to ask his boss to ask his boss to ask the division commander. So we embraced more and more mission command types of things so that everybody, soldiers at all level, actually knew what I wanted. I actually wrote a five by eight uh, commander's guidance as I took command, and I, we put it out to 25,000 soldiers so they had it, they could put it in their pocket about what I intended to do. On a modern battlefield, what you're seeing uh, in a Ukraine uh, environment is, is that now you cannot talk. You can be jammed. If you have a radio, one, you'll be located and you'll be targeted or you will be jammed. And, and so it's increasingly important now that commanders at all levels, all the way down to squad leaders and really soldiers themselves, they have to understand what is the intent of the commander that's right above them. What are they supposed to be doing? And then given freedom and the backing to, to go out and make alterations to what would had been set before as a plan. You know, we always make this joke that, uh, you know, uh, all plan, plan is great, but uh, no plan survives your contact, uh, you know, with the enemy. Or, you know, you can have a plan until you get punched in the nose. I think somebody else said that way more famous than me. Um, and that's absolutely true. And so what, how do you do that? This next generation of warriors, you've seen them right now, are being given leeway to make decisions that are, in some cases, well beyond tactical decisions. 
but they're embedded with the overall idea of this is what we are trying to accomplish in time in the area that you're at. Um, let me uh, take you to um, just uh, want to follow up one thing because I want to get the budget and programmatics because obviously this show is as much about uh, you know the culture and, and the leadership elements of it as, as it is about technology but we're going to focus on technology in a minute. When it comes to the kind of advanced air and missile defenses obviously the Ukrainians are not finding the way we would, right? USAFE would go in there and take out the radar sites and be able to establish uh, greater air superiority for you. Right now, what are the air, um, the ground denial, right? Increasingly, there's an idea that you may not have air superiority, you'll have air denial. You don't have sea superiority, you may have sea denial. Ukraine doesn't have a navy, but it is very effectively not denying uh, the Russians use of the Black Sea to the point that they pulled out of Sevastopol and, and, and went to Novorossiysk. What, what do you see when you see the air defense environment and people talk about the vulnerability of air assets? Uh, right, I mean, you know, H.R. McMaster would talk about the vulnerability that the U.S. Air Force would have to confront in, in situations like that. How do, do um, the Army's air forces operate in this environment? And how do tactics have to change and the approach have to change to be able to operate and succeed in this environment? Yeah, so Vago, as I grew up as an aviator, you know, both in the conventional aviation as well as in special operations aviation, what we always had were fairly complex plans to do suppression of enemy air defense, right? In other words, based, based on, you know, timetables and time on target and things like that, where we would actually um, locate, you know, enemy radar systems and using our Air Force or using uh, long-range artillery, which we still had and did, or potentially other types of capabilities like HIMARS, we would actually systematically eliminate um, in a corridor um, the enemy air defenses, right? And that still is a good plan today. In other words, what you have to do is be able to understand what is happening in the area that you want to use who's out there, what's their capability, and sometimes it's based on emitters like radars, uh, sometimes it's going to be based on uh, basically launched effects, but even in my day what we had was we did have some satellite capability and special operations or we had uh, you know everything uh, from Mohawks back in Germany and Korea and things like that. I, I have to describe that to many of our, the listeners out there, but uh, you know a uh, Basically, an ISR platform. Basically, uh, a great, 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 great airplane. Yeah, absolutely incredible, and uh, we relied a lot, a lot on that. And to locate these corridors of potential weakness, take out the radars as you possibly can, and then try to penetrate. And you, you see the same kinds of concepts in in new thinking about in the army about how do you use um, the aircraft in the lower air tier, the lower air domain. Uh, to actually do that uh, location or reconnaissance, then the penetration of a weak area, take out the radar systems, and then exploit it with a very rapid, and that's where the long-range assault aircraft plays a role, a very rapid exploitation. And uh, my guess will be is, is that this actually does look to me more like a flow uh, from my days all the way to Folda, all the way through you know Kosovo, and then and then uh, later on in Iraq, and then also later on into Afghanistan, and now what you're seeing on the ground, or what is needed in Ukraine, it's really not you're not seeing it demonstrated at this point in time, right? Um, let me uh, take you to the budgetary and programmatic uh, uh, outlook. Um, Ukraine reminds us all that people and equipment matter, 
and you will burn through enormous amounts of equipment uh, very, very quickly. Everybody would mock the notion of artillery shells. We're running out of artillery shells. We're running out of GMLRS. We're running out of javelins. We're running out of stingers. Uh, so much so, in fact, we now have a challenge with um, you know, Israel and Ukraine. Israel gave up some of its stockpiles and now needs capability that we're going to have to backfill and everybody's, I'm don't sure, going to wa Taiwan. We owe Taiwan quite a bit. So go on with your question, okay. but don't forget that country as well. Uh, yeah, I exactly. Thanks, uh, thanks for reminding me, right? So, I mean, we have two hot immediate ones. We're trying to deter another one. Uh, there may have been cahoots in this where Russians could have helped with jammers or Iranians or whatever, and I'm sure that the after-action intelligence will, will show us that, but it's awfully convenient for both of these countries that this conflict would, would take place. What what it does is from a budgetary standpoint because you know you do run Wash, uh, the Washington uh, operation the government operation for uh, Bell. What does this budgetary picture look like? Is you know right now we have fiscal chaos. Um, the United States Army is trying to grow its force structure even though it has recruiting challenges, but has fallen less short than it has in in some other years. We have the optionally manned fighting uh, vehicle and the ground portfolio. The United States Army is racing. Secretary Bush, uh, uh, Assistant Secretary Bush has talked about the munitions and getting artillery shell production, not just for ourselves, but for our allies and partners. There's a little bit of worry, and we'll get to that in terms of whether FAR and FLORA both get funded. Uh, as well, you know, where, where does the Army's overall portfolio from your standpoint stand in terms of it being funded and robustly funded because as an industrialist, you also don't need it funded just in 24. You need it to be robustly funded in 29 and 30, whereas there's a lot of debt discussion and concern about whether the budget goes down. What, what does this outlook look like to you as you guys try to navigate it? Well, I'll say one thing, uh, Bago, is, is that the old idea, you know, in manufacturing as well as warfighting, that just in time will work. In other words, I, I can provide a part or a capability or a munition or a aircraft just when you need it prior to a war, and I can build huge numbers, a bomber a day, for an example, during World War II or something like that. That's outmoded. You know, supply chains, the complexity of modern aircraft, the training level of a soldier or a sailor or a marine takes, takes years in many cases, and so just in time doesn't work. So you actually have to have fielded forces with a fielded capability. They have to be modernized. I mean, you know, uh, right now you have, just speaking about Army Aviation, you have the most modern normal fleet right now. We call it a legacy fleet or an enduring fleet, but uh, the Blackhawks, the Chinooks, and the Apaches are absolutely modern, and they, they are uh, not only modern in capability uh, for current right now, for right now, but uh, they basically are relatively new. Uh, we have an opportunity to transform that part of the Army. At the same time, we're transforming the rest of the Army, whether it's armored warfare, uh, et cetera, et cetera. We're trying to do the same thing with soldiers. And, uh, and we are having huge issues with, I think, you know, being able to recruit, although I, you know, there are new initiatives to be able to recruit more, more soldiers, I know, and, and this applies to all the other services. What you're probably going to see is, is that you have a budget issue, um, and we are going to be battling that for a period of time. I don't mean battling that as an army. I mean, we're going to be trying to battle that as a nation because we got so many other different priorities and what happens overseas really gets our attention. So Ukraine, uh, Israel are hot spots. Taiwan is something that we're deeply concerned about, uh, you know, trying to deter uh, any kind of a aggression from the Chinese. And you're going to have a probably a smaller army. I, I, my prediction will be is, is that uh, 
because of the recruiting challenges, also some want, desire to have force structure changes, right size the Army for an example, you're probably going to see a smaller Army, but it's going to have to be more lethal. And I think from the new chief, uh, you know, uh, General George, you're going to continue to hear that term lethality, lethality, lethality. Um, at the same time, you got that issue about you can't wait to have those capabilities come 10 years from now. You need to work on transforming the Army while you have the opportunity to do that. And that's why it's so important, I think, right now for the Army to continue to support both these platforms, the future vertical lift, both the future long-range assault as well as the attack reconnaissance. I do believe there are challenges. The, the challenges, you know, in, in some cases on the attack reconnaissance is describing a mission that I lived with, you know, throughout 34 years in the military, but to somebody that's never been in a war may be very hard to understand. Uh, the reconnaissance mission, the idea of reconnaissance and then penetrating, uh, as well as being able to control, coordinate uh, fires on a very complex civilian and enemy battlefield where you've got to be able to tell the difference. And sometimes you clearly can't see it from satellite or an ISR platform. You need to be on the ground basically doing reconnaissance or in the air, the air domain right above the ground. So it's a, it's a fascinating challenge for not only the Army, but all the, all the other services. I think they can be successful, but they do need strong support from the American people, and they need strong support from the Hill and our elected officials as far as the budget. Um, let me ask you uh, two quick questions before Jeremy gives me uh, the complete hook. Uh, one is on Flora and where you stand. Obviously a big win uh, for you guys. Uh, you know, there, there are a lot of folks who still remain a little bit uh, disappointed that they didn't uh, win and, you know, there is going to be a competition for uh, resources uh, on that front. Where does Flora stand, right? The United States Army has never picked an airplane that has gone straight into production from, uh, from down select. Uh, there are, you know, discussions about whether or not the speed has to go higher. You guys picked 280 for a very good uh, series of reasons. Where does the program stand right now, and are you comfortable and confident that, you know, the program is going to be shielded, supported, and end up delivering the kind of capability over the long term that the Army has wanted? Yeah, so I'm involved with the Future Long Range Assault Program. I was actually involved with it in the start of 2013. So here we are in 2023. It's actually 10 years later. I mean, it, it's been fairly rapid, and we flew 200 hours over a three-year period. Um, where we are currently is that is the Army is our customer. We're working hand-in-hand -hand with PEO Aviation and the program office. Uh, we're on track for a milestone B uh, decision in the, uh, what I would say, June-July timeframe. Uh, we're very optimistic, and I think what we heard here at the show from all the Army leadership is they too are very optimistic that uh, we'll successfully pass the milestone B and go into an actual program of record. What you'll see immediately after that is, that in fact, we're already making these capital investments to produce uh, the parts for these aircraft is uh, eight aircraft will be built as uh, basically production representative aircraft that will be going in to test. Um, what follows that still on the same contract that we're under will be eight uh, LRIP aircraft or low rate uh, initial production aircraft uh, that will be used to field the first unit equipped in about the 2030 time frame. Uh, obviously, we look forward to ramping up uh, production uh, right after 2030 and start fielding uh, uh, future uh, units, and uh, we're pretty excited about that. It's great to be back and have the Army as our primary customer. Uh, it is, uh, it is uh, extraordinary, and I know how hard you guys designed this to make sure that it didn't change too much as it goes into production. So we're very interested to see what are uh, the changes and the trade-offs made. Let me ask you one last question, which is about FARA. Um, you know, you uh, 
guys obviously had one very big uh, endorsement in the selection of that. The Army did question the compound coaxial approach, so there were a lot of folks who, who believed that you guys might have an edge in that next uh, competition as well. But we also don't have a master aviator who's chief of the United States Army, and this was something that was very important to General McConville, uh, one of the most consequential chiefs we've had in a long time in terms of uh, a variety of things that he managed to touch. The Army has announced an analysis of alternatives now. Some of us cynically look at that as an off-ramp, uh, potentially. What's the outlook for the FARA program, and where does it stand, and are you convinced that this is going to see its course through just like it did on FARA, uh, FLARA? Excuse me. I, I remain very optimistic just because uh, the future attack reconnaissance uh, aircraft is actually this incredible need or requirement for the, for the U.S. Army. So it's something that they absolutely have to have. The best proponent for this actually isn't an Army aviator. It's, in fact, the armored forces on the ground, the infantry, the combat engineers on the ground that absolutely need that reconnaissance capability and the light attack capability, not only over their heads, but seeing 30, 40 kilometers in front of them. That's going to be the best proponent. I'm looking forward to working with the rest of the Army so that they do understand that that's, that is the capability that they could get when they have this kind of a platform. There's one question, sir, that I uh, need to ask you because of your experience in Afghanistan. When you commanded the mission there, it was at its nadir in some respects. We didn't have enough people, and you were one of the people who um, actually helped s stage and prepare the field for the surge to come. And one of your concerns, as you note in your book, was it's one thing to take the bad guys out. It's another thing to be able to build some sort of lasting equilibrium and a lasting peace that goes well beyond the use of military force. We're seeing in Ukraine a, uh, a test of wills between two nations, but ultimately it will have to be settled. Just like what we're seeing now is horrendous and heinous as uh, the actions that happen in Israel, there will be a reaction, but then the question is, all right, what comes after this? As a soldier who has experience in more places than many other soldiers, What's the right approach for folks to be thinking about this in terms of what do you think of after the conflict? Because ultimately, it's about a political resolution at the end of the day. I mean, in mo all cases, war generally is a political, uh, you know, uh, uh, fight that actually goes to a military capability. And it ends up having to still be resolved politically or, th or through an armistice or discussions, you know. And so what you'll see, I think, in the Ukraine is, is that Right now you have a war of attrition, two sides working to wear itself out. I think that President, well, I think Putin thinks that he can outlast uh, NATO um, and, and the Ukrainians. Um, it's, an unclear, it's not clear to me that he can, uh, and as long as there's strong support for the Ukrainians, I think that uh, they have a better than even chance of being able to wear the Russians out, and eventually they'll probably come to some sort of an armistice. In Israel, what you're going to see is what Israel is dealing with is, is something that it's not going to go away tomorrow. They can they can reduce Gaza to rubble and move uh, all those refugees or all those people to someplace else, but at the end of the day, you've got a group a group of people that desire to be citizens of a, of their own country or citizens where they are respected as equal citizens in a country such as Israel. Israel is going to have to figure this out politically. It's this is something they are going to have to deal with. Until until that happens, you're going to see terrorists. Terrorist groups like Hamas do very violent things that uh, you know the rest of the world believes is absolutely atrocious. I think it's atrocious. I'm certainly not uh, saying that anything that they did was was made sense, 
but it's a political issue that they that Israel's got to solve. Sir, it's always an honor and pleasure. Thank you so very much. Uh, best of luck, and already looking forward to talking again soon. Thanks so much. Vago, thank you very much for having me on the podcast. Thanks so much for listening to the Air Power Podcast. And if you enjoyed what you heard today, hey, please tell a friend. Special thanks to GE Aerospace for powering the whole flight. We'll be back next week.